Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D and our second interview for Season 4 with aerospace engineer and amateur astronomer Scott Gower. Originally from Danville, Pennsylvania, Scott is a graduate of Penn State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering and a minor in Astrophysics. Since 2017, he's been employed at SpaceX in Hawthorne, California as a propulsion engineer of both the Dragon International Space Station cargo resupply spacecraft and, more recently, the Falcon 9 second stage engine, the Merlin 1D vacuum. Scott has been doing astronomy and astrophotography in his free time since 2010 and enjoys public outreach and education. In part one of our interview with Scott, we'll delve into his insights on getting started in astronomy and astrophotography. We'll discuss Scott's recommendations on telescopes and other options such as binoculars, his favorite astronomical targets, post-image processing, and working around the increasing challenge of urban light pollution. Finally, we'll touch on some options for networking, including connecting to local astronomy clubs, participating in star parties, and attending the Northeast Astronomy Forum. Well, welcome everyone to Space 3D. This is Tom Hill. We're here with all three hosts tonight. We've got Eleonora Rangers and Emily Carney. And tonight we're going to be talking to Scott Gower about amateur astronomy. As we move into our new new season here, we were trying to think of some other things that we could talk about with space. We want to cover the whole the whole beachfront here, and, and the idea occurred to us about uh, amateur astronomy. Scott and I met through Space Hipsters, which, uh, of course, our own Emily is one, is the founder of it. It's uh, We're approaching 20,000 members, aren't we, Emily? Yes, uh, unbelievably enough. We're almost at 10 years as well in February. Okay. Have you do it? Have you do? You should set up a pool to predict when we hit twenty thousand. I think it's going to be quite soon. Yes. Yeah, cool. But uh, but but we met through space hipsters. It turns out we both went to Penn State. Scott and I. Uh, we both work in the aerospace industry, and we actually met in Meet Space on my last trip to California before the whole world went mad, and uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. But today we're going to talk about. His amateur astronomy work, which is some amazing stuff, will include some links in his bio in the um, in the summary. But uh, welcome to the show, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, when did you get started in amateur astronomy? Um, so I got started probably back in I want to say 2010 when my mom got me a telescope for my birthday, and coincidentally, the lunar eclipse that year happened to be literally on my birthday. So I'm like, hey, mom, can I open my telescope slightly early so I can use my telescope to watch the lunar eclipse? From the first time I uh, put that telescope on, I think I think Jupiter was the first thing I put it on. I'm like, wow, I kind of want to take some pictures of this. Um, and just like stuck my uh, my mom's camera up against that and been into it ever since and pouring uh money into that. <laughs> yes, it can. Like most hobbies, they can certainly become a money sink. How many telescopes would you say you've owned so far? Um, well, every telescope that I bought, I still have. Um, of course. And that number is seven. 
<laughs> wow. Do they keep getting bigger every time? So sometimes they get bigger. My last one that I bought, definitely the biggest one, um, just bought the C14. But oftentimes, um, it's not necessarily about size. Um, you can get some really high quality instruments that are small as well, like uh, multiple lenses on a refractor or something like that, that are as expensive or maybe even more expensive than a larger telescope. And depending on what, what, what kind of work you do, the smaller one may, uh, may actually be um, your cup of tea. It's one of the things that uh, we're probably going to talk about, you know, how you get started in this sort of thing. But I think one of the big things people should realize is that you don't need to spend a lot of money to get started. No, definitely not. My, I mean, my first telescope, it was um, one of those go-to kinds. It was pretty convenient, but um, I also got like a good pair of binoculars shortly after that. They're definitely like, as far as binoculars, really, uh, really a great starting item, especially if you aren't sure if you want to commit to um, investing several hundred dollars into an actual telescope, just get binoculars, which if you think about them, they're basically like two tel too many telescopes that are joined together, one for each eye. Um, so those are always good. And then, yeah, some of the amazing things that's happened over time with the equipment, you know, it's still not cheap, but it's much cheaper than it used to be. You can get a much better piece of equipment for the amount of money now than you could in the past. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely insane. I think the revolution really happened like in the 70s and 80s when they just figured out how to do mass production of these uh, these optics, which if, like they're pretty, uh, pretty detailed and very uh, nuanced as far as like how to grind them, how to polish them and all that. And with uh, the advent of mass production of that, it's just driven down costs dramatically. And it's crazy to think that you can buy a telescope now for maybe like a month or two income um, that like a hundred years ago would literally have been like one of the largest telescopes in the world or like you would have been a, a world-class observatory just having the telescope that you bought with uh with your fun money. Amazing. So what are your, some of your favorite targets that you uh, point at? And do you have a bucket list of targets? Um, a uh, bucket list of targets? Not really. Um, being in the LA area, it's really hard to do a lot of the, the stuff like nebulas and galaxies just because the light pollution here is atrocious. There like is no night sky. It's just all yellow glow. And so um, back when I was in Pennsylvania, I did, uh, did a lot of deep sky stuff. And um, since then, since moving to L.A., I've kind of gotten more into the planetary and solar side, um, just because that stuff is not as affected by light pollution. I do really like the sun. The sun, uh, for one, it's like you don't need to stay up till the middle of the night to, to do stuff, which is always great. Um, but it's also just like so dynamic. Like you can literally take a couple pictures a few minutes apart and they'll look completely different uh, of, of features on the sun's surface. Um, so I like the sun. Moon is also obviously a great target um, as long as you have like the seeing conditions. Same, same goes to planetary. So Jupiter, Saturn, which um, how many of you guys are looking forward to the conjunction a couple of days coming up here? It's just yeah, going to be amazing. Yes. Yeah, that's exciting. Yep. I'm excited to see that. Yeah. So you might be able to get both planets in one view through a telescope. I mean, like. Yeah, the plan. Yeah, that's crazy. And I got to say. When when you're showing the night sky off to people, nothing gets the wows like Saturn's rings or Jupiter's moons. When you tell somebody that they're looking at the moons of Jupiter, they're, they're like, what? You know, it's just uh, it's just crazy. Yeah, I actually. So um, when I was in high school, I was part of a thing called the Charlie Bates Solar Astronomy Project, which is um, basically a, a loosely assembled group of people who do like 
solar astronomy outreach to schools. Um, so I did that to schools, but also did that to just like the general public as well. And even um, as I've been out here, um, I'll just have my telescope either at the beach or um, on the sidewalk and I'll have just kids or, or somebody come up and ask to look through and like, yeah, go for it. And they'll see Saturn or Mars or um, whatever and just like completely blown away by by how, especially like the, the, the craters on the moon, people are just like super awed by how how tack sharp the moon can look through through a nice telescope. Like nobody's actually seen, not many people have actually seen the craters on the moon before with their own eyes. Like you look up at the moon and it's just like glowing there. But when you actually can see detail to it, it kind of just like transports people to, to the moon almost in the in that sense. Yeah. If you're if you're looking right along the Terminator there where the, the shadows bring out the relief, that really draws a gasp. What can you still see with the degree of light pollution you have in the L.A. area, almost any major metropolitan area in the States? Do you have any recommendations to people that may be in major metro areas of light? What easy targets to look for? Best targets um, in the metropolitan area are, are kind of the ones that I've already um, said that I'm, I'm into. So like sun, the moon, and then all the plants, because those are going to be affected by light pollution virtually zero. I've actually like tried to take a couple pictures of Uranus lately, and um, Uranus is definitely doable, but you actually do start to notice the light pollution as you try to like expose for the moons of Uranus. Um, so as you get out to those dimmer objects, it, it becomes more apparent. But from a metropolitan area, it, it becomes really quite difficult to do anything, um, anything even like remotely deep sky, like the Andromeda Galaxy, which is probably the brightest deep sky object or the Orion Nebula, like the brightest deep sky objects that are pretty much slam dunks for anybody in a, in a good dark sky location is almost impossible to do from, um, from a metropolitan area without some degree of, of filtering. And so the filtering that you can do is Basically, because you know that at least um, what has been the story is um, cities use low pressure sodium and high pressure sodium lights to illuminate um, the streets. And consequently, all that light gets reflected up in the sky. Fortunately, um, in the past, the, uh, the sodium lights, they produce a very um, predictable spectrum because it's literally just sodium giving off light. And so you can design filters to filter out the sodium uh, emission lines. And in the past, that has been what people do to kind of like cheat the light pollution because um, it essentially blocks out all that yellow glow. But nowadays, um, as we move to LEDs that are more energy efficient and, and good for the environment. So it's like it's good for the environment, but it's also worse for the night skies because LEDs are um, broadly emitting. So it's they, they emit all colors of light and you can't just easily filter them out. So it becomes more it's becoming more difficult to do deep sky astronomy from uh, urban areas, unfortunately. Hmm. Huh, that's an interesting trade I hadn't thought of. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, and I can actually notice it. Like it, it, the cities definitely are starting to look a bit more white now um, than just like the deathly yellow that they have in the past. The IDA, the International Dark Sky Association is, is trying to get cities to realize that yes, um, switching to LEDs is great um, for the environment, but you also have to do it smartly and, and try and um, get those lights to be pointed as like towards the ground as possible. So as little light leaks into the sky, because it's definitely harder to filter out the LEDs than the, the sodium lights of the past. Well, if the city has to do something smart, we're pretty much done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Not going to happen. So basically the best advice is to get out of the city for a weekend trek or something like that to dark skies. 
Pretty much, yeah. I mean, like I've tried, um, like we had the lunar eclipse here, I want to say a year and a half ago or so. And Orion up, was up and I was like, hey, you know, I'm just going you know, to try and take a picture of the Orion Nebula because that's so easy to do. And it's like impossible to mess up the Orion Nebula. But yeah, no, it's like faint smudge. Like, okay, yeah, there's the Orion Nebula, but you're not even going to think about trying to hang that on your wall or anything. It's unless you get like the really narrow, uh, near, really narrow band filters for hydrogen alpha and, uh, and oxygen and whatnot, sulfur. Um, you're really not going to get good quality pictures from uh, from urban areas as far as nebulas and galaxies goes. That is one of the big uh, disappointments for people when you point a telescope at a nebula and they look at it with and their eye much. and they go, huh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many of you guys have seen those new um, like e-telescopes that are popping up that are fairly expensive, but they have like pretty much, there is no optical eyepiece. It's literally just like a little LCD or actually I think it's an OLED display um, where you put your eye and that OLED is coupled to an image sensor at the focal point of the telescope. And it's doing like, it's doing some kind of um, amplification. So you can actually see the colors to nebulas in real time. Even oh, wow. though you know, some people might not, might, might say, oh, it's not actually a telescope then. You're literally just like looking at a camera um, that's hooked up to your telescope, but it is it is something that we can do now that really hasn't been possible before, which is pre- pretty cool. You can see colors of nebulas and galaxies in real time. Huh. No, I didn't. I didn't know about that's that. That's really cool. How much yeah. are they? They're um. So one of the companies that makes them, I think they're called Unistellar. They're like pretty expensive. They're like three or four grand for. Dang. Okay. Yeah. You gotta be serious. I'm- yeah, I was thinking, man, that would be cool. Maybe I'll get one of those things. And then I'm like, no, nope, no, nah, nah, we're good. Because I'm like, man, if it was like 300 bucks, that would, okay, yeah, I could afford that. But no, nah, three, four grand. All right. Give it a few <laughs> so, and that is one of the, one of the things that's literally a limitation of the human eye. That's why we don't see colors of nebula and things like that, because our eyes have a certain refresh rate and we can't absorb enough light to get the colors yet. Right. It's just like, and it's just a number of photons. Like you put your eye up against um, something with uh, a 10 times the diameter of your pupil, you're going to get a hundred times more light. And it's just enough to be able to start exciting um, colors. Like it, I, I've actually heard of people. So we have the Mount Wilson observatory nearby, um, which yeah. is a great place. And they have public observing nights occasionally where you can go up to the top of the mountain and actually put your eye um, in the optical path of what is it like 100 or 200 um, inch telescope that they have up there and oh you goodness. can actually start seeing colors wow. um, which is pretty wild it's another edge of what's come about with this with uh, amateur astronomy now is the processing software that people have access to that uh, that just really can bring out the the images that, uh, that we you wouldn't be able to get before yeah, it's actually really interesting. Software is really, really great. And the advances that have been made in processing are pretty crazy. You can actually exceed the theoretical resolution um, of your telescope as defined by like physics with, with the right processing software as far as the resolution of, the, of your telescope. You can actually train your telescope on like, like let's say Saturn and you take a video of several thousand um, picture frames of Saturn and hidden in those picture frames is um, if you average them all together, it's going to basically sample the same point 
um, a bunch of times. And so even though your telescope is not theoretically able to resolve that, um, that object in real time, if you use the averaging and the sharpening tools that have been made available free to people, which is um, another really nice aspect of it, a lot of this stuff is open source. If you use these tools, you can actually get like really sharp pictures that um, otherwise would not be possible. Are you a member of a local club in your area or anything? No, um, not at the moment. Okay. That is uh, one of the, where I live in Northern Virginia, there's a Northern, Northern Virginia Astronomy Club and they have, they used to have, I, I assume they'll get back into it, like monthly meetings and they have equipment you can sign out. It's like you can try it before you buy it. And they've got some pretty good stuff too. It's pretty amazing. And then they also have access. They have locations that they can, that, you know, like private property that they have an agreement with. So you can go to there and the, you, they, you get to the darker skies in the area, not, you know, dark skies, obviously, unless you get into West Virginia. Oh yeah. Um, we were in West Virginia for, for a school thing. And those are, that, that's pretty, uh, pretty dark there. Um, yeah, I think you guys also have like Cherry Springs up in Pennsylvania. That's a great place as well. Oh, no, I haven't heard of that one. Oh yeah. Cherry Springs state park. It's like, I think it's technically the darkest spot uh, I want to say east of the Mississippi River, but don't quote me on that. But it's pretty it's pretty dark. Like, you can definitely see the Milky Way. Oh, nice. Yeah, one year I was on vacation out, out west in the uh, National Parks. <clears throat> and the timing was such that we were, and my <clears throat> friend and I were, like, driving out to, I think it was Moab. And we were in, like, the... Uh, I don't know, stopped off at like Burger King for lunch. And there was a poster in there about um, a star party that was going to be at Bryce Canyon. And we were, it turned out the last night of that star party was going to be one of the days that we were going to be there. And that was really pretty amazing. Just seeing all these guys setting up in one of the parking lots near the visitor center and waiting for it to get dark and and it really i mean it gets dark out there so it was it was wonderful viewing of just some amazing objects and that was a lot of fun yeah the star parties are always great because if you're gathering a bunch of people that are passionate about the same thing together and there's all sorts of really cool discussions that go on there's a really cool astronomy expo up in new york um, in the suffern area every year called northeast astronomy forum and that place is great. I've been there, I want to say like four or five times. And it's pretty much like the go-to event for the amateur astronomy community, just because it's where all the vendors gather. Like you got pretty much all of the, the main players in the astronomy community. You got Celestron, Mead, Teleview, William Opta, like pretty much everybody that makes telescopes or anything even remotely related to telescopes or photography goes to... Uh, Northeast Astronomy Forum, and they just like rent out a gym there, and they just set up like probably I want to say million, like, probably tens to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment um, uh, in this place, and they have presentations and speakers, and they've had astronauts speak, they've had like uh, NASA administrators speak, they've had SpaceX, Boeing, um, ULA speak, they've had a ton of really cool things happen there. So if any of your listeners are in the uh, the New York area. It's usually in the April timeframe every year. Definitely check out the Northeast Astronomy Forum. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Space 3D. We'll continue our discussion on astronomy with Scott Gower on our next podcast. 
For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.